0: Investors Chronicle.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Investing Explained podcast series. In the last podcast, we took a deep dive into the world of investment funds. Today, I'm delighted that we're going to hone in on everything you need to know about investing in shares. Well, we couldn't possibly cover everything, but we've got some experts here to help us through the basics. I'm delighted to be joined by the IC's Associate Editor, Algie Hall, as well as Chris Beecham, IG's Chief Markets Analyst. Algie, Chris, thank you for coming on. How are you? Thank you. Good, thanks. Yeah,
2: very well, thank you. Pleasure to be here.
1: Now, we'll start with the basics. Chris, when you buy a share, what are you actually buying? Well,
2: you're really buying, I suppose, part of a company, I suppose a share in that company, hence the name, um, and access to the opportunities of that company's share price. And hopefully, obviously, it goes up because the revenues will improve and the earnings will continue to um, increase and dividends should continue to be paid. And that's essentially what you're buying, is a share in the future cash flow. And I think a lot of focus is, in my job particularly is on markets and why they go up and why they go down and what makes them go up and down. Ultimately, stock markets particularly are going up and down on expectations of future cash flow. Um, and that's what drives them. That's what's driven them over the past year, so the rebound from lockdown. And that's what you're doing when you're investing in the stock market. You're saying, I want to put money to work in the market to get a piece of a company's um, future earnings.
1: Yeah, and I think before we get on to how you um, how you try and get good returns, I think stake stakeholder ownership is one of the attractions of owning shares that you don't get in funds. Algy, what what rights do you have as a shareholder?
0: Um, the rights can vary, but generally, you you've got. Um, ownership of part of that business and um, as Chris says, this stream of future cash flows which is coming. um, Things to watch out for though is whether you're going to be diluted from um, if a company gets into trouble and has to raise um, new equity, new money through selling new shares in particular, whether you're going to um, get to participate in that and also voting rights can vary between different share classes. What you also have to be aware of is that As a holder of equity, you're down at the bottom end of the pecking order. So um, this makes the returns far greater than you'd have from debt, for example. But it also means if a company gets into trouble, everyone else is going to get paid before you get paid. And that's why um, often shareholders are entirely wiped out when a company gets into real trouble. So um, you're at the risky end of of the spectrum in terms of what you own, your you know your your head is on the block first.
1: Yeah, that's that's quite a frightening way of putting it, <laughs> but it is true and it's important that people know that. Um, just Chris, just for for the people getting started, how much more risky would you say buying a shares to to buying an ETF or a fund?
2: Yeah, at the simplest level, it is obviously much more risky, particularly if you're buying a share or a certain number of shares in one. Particular company, because for that point in time, you are putting I suppose all your eggs in one particular basket. The the idea is that you would eventually broaden out that basket. To stretch that metaphor slightly, Um, it obviously leaves you exposed to the ups and downs of investment. And I think people have to be very aware of this when they go into it. Obviously, funds go up and down in value, but because their risk is spread around so many more companies, the concentration of being in one company is far riskier. And there is, as Aldrich said, substantial to lose everything. So the risk is there and people have to understand that the corollary of course to that risk is that you should get returns that exceed that of say being in a cash ISA or indeed um, being in in a fund because the idea is obviously companies themselves individual companies can have much bigger returns than funds. If you look at Amazon, Apple to take the great example, obviously they've exceeded uh, the S and P 500 they've exceeded the return of almost every other fund I suppose in the world. And you get that potential. Obviously for every Apple and Amazon, there are far more that haven't done as well or indeed have much, much poorer performers. So you have to accept that the risk comes with the potential for those greater returns.
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And um what we're here to talk about. So we'll get into the hard stuff of how you actually how you actually go about selecting shares. Now, Algie, I think um, an important thing is that you need to establish your own investment process. As people have different approaches. Some people look for great companies they want to own for a long time. Others look for turnaround stories.
0: Can you talk us through what the different approaches are? Um, well, I mean, there are there there are many many different approaches. I suppose I suppose you could bundle. Um, them into a few um, different categories uh, if you want to be very broad. Um, I mean, I, I think the one the really important thing about um, invest, what investment approach you choose to have is that it's something that actually um, you have a real intuitive um, appreciation of. It's something that appeals to you a lot because that makes investing more fun, more interesting. It means you're going to explore what you're doing a lot more, research the companies that you're ultimately going to invest in. A lot, lot, more deeply, and that is those are the things which really um, increase your chances of success. Um, the, the reality is different, inve- there are many different investment styles which work. So that's good news, I suppose. Um, kind of, you know, just knowing your personality and finding which one works for you, though, is um, the kind of you know the first thing that probably um, a new investor who's looking to invest in individual shares should start to become interested in. And that involves reading around the subject as much as anything else. But um, I suppose in terms of the question of, you know, if we're going to, um, you know, define a few styles, there's um, value investing, which um, uh, I mean, all, all of these things are, you know, there are lots of interpretations of them. But generally, you um, Value investing normally make makes most sense to me. I, I would say when it's con- contrarian, it's about looking for um, companies or in the shares of companies which the stock market has fallen out of love with, but in actual fact, which you know could become more attractive to the market again. They aren't going to collapse and disappear, in your opinion. So you think there's a basis for buying them, and hopefully the shares will re-rate and the companies will become better companies. Um there's quality investing, which is um very much kind of like the the um the dish of the decade if it is is it you were it's been incredibly popular and successful over the last ten years, and that is just find, trying to find great companies which you can buy and hold um often though these companies are very expensive and more so now than they were at the start of the decade when um perhaps people weren't so fixated on that kind of investing. Uh, growth investing and uh, kind of momentum investing, I'd, I'd kind of lump that in there with two. It's, this is kind of looking at for companies which are doing well, which are becoming more appreciated by the market, and um, really, you know, jumping on the bandwagon if you like. Um, and and you know this, the, and I say jumping on the bandwagon, it's a bandwagon that can keep keep on rolling and rolling and rolling. So it's not, it doesn't have to be a short term thing, which um, I think people often. Um, regard momentum investing as. And I suppose the final style bucket that I would um, highlight is kind of dividend investing. Um, This isn't really, you know, you can create an income stream through dividends by doing it, but um, that shouldn't really be the primary um, thing investors are looking at. It's um, looking for companies which are essentially conservatively managed and um, well financed and kind of growing, but possibly, you know, slightly dull so they're underappreciated. And um, they, those kind of companies, there's a lot of evidence that they can do very well for um, for equity investors. Yeah.
1: And you run lots of stock screens for the Investors Chronicle, which is a very useful tool for yes. thousands of our readers. Which, which screen's been the most consistently
0: Reliable. Well, I mean, it, 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 based on what I've just said, it probably won't come as any surprise that it's the, the quality screen, the large cap, uh, I think I call it high-quality large cap screen, has been um, the best over uh, the last 10 years. I think it's it delivered a... I've got, I have got have got some numbers for it here, actually, because um, I think we're going to talk about the effects of costs. So, um But over the, 10, the first 10 years I ran it, uh, it, it delivered a 520% return based just on this you know so it's a kind of like it's a no brains methodology so it's pretty dumb but it's there for ideas generation but the returns um that it actually managed are far from dumb the FTSE all share did 120 percent over the same period so it's like spectacularly outperformed based on you know some really quite uh basic criteria but um you can use criteria to help generate ideas and then take those ideas further through your research
1: yeah, I guess the hard bit you sort of said it was a, a style that's been in favour, and and whether that's going to yeah. turn or not. <laughs> yeah,
0: and a style can only stand favour for so long.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris, do you have um, do you have thoughts on whether investment styles are suitable across different sectors or different geographies? Um, in many
2: ways, they they do apply across all of them if you're looking for value companies you'll obviously look for the same kind of um, requirements if you like uh, for us firms or uk firms or japanese firms um, some markets are more popular for growth investors than others obviously if you're looking in terms of growth then something like the nasdaq is your obvious go-to you know, it's fueled by these companies with strong and recurring growth which is why it's done uh, so well you have to remember that obviously different industries have different Characteristics you wouldn't find these crazy growth valuations with these relatively high P ratios in, say, utilities, for example, they're far more staid and unexciting with all due respect to the companies involved because of the nature of their business, so they're there for the reliability of their income, the reliability um, of their dividends. Whereas for, say, mining, you're looking at far more cyclical industries, you know, go through strong periods and then weak periods, obviously, ebbs and flows with broader global economy. So again, yes, some sectors will lend themselves more obviously to to momentum investing, particularly or to growth and to high quality. Um, and across in various countries as well, um, some will have more to appeal in terms of the, the growth focus, whereas say, then a lot of people would still view the FTSE 100 as more of a value index than others. So that can change, obviously, as Algie says as well. Um, styles come and go, and indices have different characteristics over time and that changes as well depending on the weighting of the companies in those indices.
1: Yeah and I guess um, regardless of what style you're investing in ultimately you need to work out if you think the share price is going to go up (laughs) and to do that you work out um, whether you think the the company is valued correctly which is a very difficult thing to do but Algie can you talk us through the basics on how you can go about valuing a company
0: yeah i i think um one one of the things with valuations is to kind of um the actual valuation in itself tells you a lot about or you know probably should tell you a lot about the type of company you're looking at so um it's almost easier easiest to think about valuation by going backwards you first kind of try and understand why a company is valued in the way it is So, um, I mean, I I think um, for people who are just starting out, one of the big mistakes they can make is um, they'll look at a valuation say, you know, it's a very high yield or it's a very low PE and they think, oh, that's incredibly cheap. Whereas in actual fact, the question, the first question is, so why does the market think this company's earnings or this company's income stream or whatever it is, isn't worth very much and then you'll normally find you normally quite fit. quickly start to find the answers to that and then from there the question is so are there reasons that I can see that the market may change its mind is there something happening and um some you know sometimes um it, you know there, there can be you know surprisingly obvious things which are which are changing, which um, especially when you're talking about value investing, which is when valuation really matters, um, which the market just doesn't hasn't picked up on because it's quite frankly just so sick of this, you know, underperforming stock, which it's put a very low rating on. Um, equally, if you're seeing a very high valuation, it doesn't mean a comp- it normally means the company is quite excellent rather than it, that it's quite expensive. And then really, what you want to be asking is so. Can it sustain this kind of enthusiasm of the market and can it exceed the market's enthusiasm, uh, you know, kind of announcing earnings, which are better than people are forecasting, you know, announcing new deals, whatever it is, can can that be sustained? Because that's what's going to carry on pushing the share price higher. Probably it won't be to do with a re-rating, the valuation. You know, if, it, if it's high, you just have to, you know, fingers crossed that that's going to remain a popular area but in terms of the, looking at whether the company can deliver you, you understand what it's doing which is special and ask is it going to carry on looking as special and potentially more special in the future.
1: And in terms of when you're researching a company the annual report is is probably the go-to document which has all the information in it. Are there other places you think investors should look? How How, should, how might the research process look?
0: um I, I think you're totally right uh, about the annual report just being um yeah the perfect um document if you're for researching a company um that there are I mean company websites actually carry a lot of great information um a lot of it's more along the marketing lines and I, I suppose that's the thing that um someone researching a company always has to watch out for that they're not just falling for the marketing spin and that even starts with how they um you look at an annual report because um what you get at the front of an annual report is all um extremely favorable and you know if you if you only read the front of annual reports you'll be surprised any company is ever you know having a bad time with its share price because it's you know going to be glorious so um in, in the annual report, you need to start uh, kind of, you know, towards the back. I normally kind of will always spend several hours in the you know final two thirds of um, the annual report before I go anywhere else. And um, looking at the cash flow statement to begin with and then trying to find out bits of information from the notes, from things which have piqued my interest, the statement of key risks, which is, you know, amazing uh, in terms of just telling about the business and how it works. And um, also the auditor's report often has like, lots of very interesting things which make you understand the mechanics of a business also. Um, but so I think that's you know, definitely the place to start because you'll come away objective, um, looking objectively or having an objective idea about the company as long as you don't start at the front of that annual report. And then um, there are presentations and uh, broker notes, articles, all, all those other things which you can look for as well after that.
1: Great. Thank you. And I know this is getting quite into the technicalities, but I think it's quite important. Chris, there are lots of different valuation metrics that people use and look at such as price to book, price to earnings, enterprise value to sales. Can you explain what the main ones are and and which are sort of useful to look at in different contexts?
2: Yeah, I think there there are so many, um, and they continue to sort of proliferate, really. Um, the one that many people come across to start with is that price to earnings ratio, the, the famed PE ratio, where you'd look at the share price, you divide it by the earnings per share, and you should get a ratio. Ideally, of course, you want that to be strong, but not, not too high. I think usually people sort of say, if you've got a PE between, say, 5 and 15, that's usually quite good value now that is probably a slightly old-fashioned way of looking at the market these days because obviously at the moment you're looking at things like price to earnings growth ratios or you're looking to for higher um, P ratios because they show if you like um, quality and the company is appreciated by the market Um, there's a lot of focus on what they call the cyclical adjusted price to earnings ratio which looks at over 10 years and includes various other factors which is used to sort sort of argue for where markets as a whole are overvalued or undervalued then you have things like dividend yield which is always a good one and as I'll just sort of flagged you don't just buy shares for the dividend it's obviously a, a natural attraction people look at something and they get an income from it then that will be as a good thing and if you say look at a group of shares and they're giving you a yield of say 15 to 20 percent you must think well this is brilliant because I'll get plenty of money anyway regardless of whether the shares go up or down usually when you get these sort of ratios you need to look at them as a whole, you shouldn't look at a P ratio of a single company in isolation. You should say, what's its PE ratio? What's the ratio for the companies, similar companies in that sector? So for example, say we, for the sake of argument, we say utility companies, which ones are viewed as expensive with high ratios, which ones are viewed as cheaper with lower ratios, and what's the average for the sector? So then you get a sense of where the company you're looking at sits in that sector and indeed in the broader index and in the FTSE 100 itself. Um, the same with dividend yields. Look at what the yields are for other companies in that sector, and then if it's too low or too high, that's usually a useful red flag there uh, as well. We we could go on and on about the the, the valuations. Um, A lot of time is spent on discussing the particular method, and plenty will sort of crop up. I think it's, I say, important to just look at it in the context of the market as a whole, and usually you can then sort of see where the company sits and if it's if it's sort of one. uh, uh, Either end of the spectrum, then that's usually a useful sign that either it's too cheap, it's cheap for a reason, or it's expensive and us have got high expectations. And that's obviously the problem with markets as well. It's not just the the actual numbers that come in. Say this year Tesco made a profit, but the questions are: Was it as good as expected? Was it as bad? Was it worse than expected? Um, how has the share price performed in and around that statement? Um, and that's what makes valuation important, but it's not the be all and end all. I think it's a useful starting point, particularly to filter out companies and sort of get rid of the the things you don't want. If you say I want a value screen that has companies with P ratios of no more than 15, then you can then remove the others. And then at least it narrows down the universe, because particularly now when you've got globalised investing and you're looking at companies from around the globe, there are so many to choose from that a lot of people understand we find it quite daunting. And it's about winnowing down to remove what you don't want or you could filter for companies with high debt levels and get rid of them or companies with strong cash generation or you could look at say um, dividend cover which is um, how well the dividend is covered if it's got is is covered by cash of companies producing enough cash to cover the dividend and more then that's quite a good sign if it's having to pay the dividend out from cash reserves, so it's got a low dividend cover ratio that's usually a worrying sign you want to sort. Of dispense with those because it's never a good idea to be paying shareholders money at the expense of your actual um, cash resources so there's all these kind of things that you use just to try and narrow down what you want in an investment and that's the important thing really is to try and make it easier because if you try to read every company annual report um, looked at every single ratio you, you'd never make a decision it's about trying to narrow things down so that you can filter this process and this is something done by investors of all kinds and sizes really everyone has to Throw away the stuff they don't want in order to focus on the companies that are more likely to be appropriate candidates for their investing
1: style. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And, Algie, you've written a lot about intangible assets, um, which yeah. are things like brands and software. And how does that change how you value a
0: company? Well, um, it can change it vastly because um, the, the kind of the Accounting um, playing field is not level. It's there's a, um, I mean, I, I think there's a growing problem really, which um, uh, investors are becoming more and more aware of, which is that when um, a company invests in tangible assets, which um, back in the old days used to be the main thing that companies used to invest in, so that's things like you know property, equipment, uh, you know vehicles, stuff like that. What a company does is they match it against all the future sales they're going to. They match that cost against the future sales they're going to get from using that asset. So you you kind of have an earnings number, which where you, you where you're matching the sales and the costs to get the profit. Um, with intangibles, it's treated. They're all treated as if they're uh, upfront expense. So um, if um, you're a drug development company and and you're developing a drug over you know ten years but you think you've got 20 years of income coming off it if it's a a success, you're going to have all that cost in those development years, but then you're going to have none of the costs set against the sales in the the future years, or a small proportion um, would be treated in the same way as tangibles probably, because it's not quite that simple. But generally, these intangibles are viewed as if they've got no future value um, which is a total nonsense. And uh, what that means in terms of um, looking at um, ratios is that earnings um, numbers for companies which use a lot of intangibles can be complete nonsense. And also the balance sheet can be massively understated because all of that spending, it isn't recorded, is um, an asset which will be used in the future. It's recorded, it's, you know, been written off immediately. So, um it kind of really um, makes accounts confusing when we're looking at um, some of the you know, most exciting companies of the model a- modern age who use loads of intangibles. So like, you know, the Googles and the Amazons of this world, where a lot of what they do is based on, you know, investing in these kind of big development projects, which, um, uh, you know, may have huge payoffs, but you know they don't take as most of what they're doing is kind of you know is kind of intellectual um, property know how you know that kind of uh, stuff and which just doesn't go through the accounts in the way one would expect intuitively.
1: Yeah, so I guess the takeaway is that it's not really fair to compare necessarily valuations across industries.
0: Yes, yeah, 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 yeah Yes, it's it's always oh, it's, it's very yeah it's very dangerous if you're um you've got to yeah you need to know what you're doing absolutely. You're right, Chris. Would you?
1: On, sort of on on a similar point, if you were trying to work out the value of a tech company, how might that compare with, for example, a, a more cyclical company such as a house builder?
2: Well, there again, I think it's it's about looking at um, the strength of the company, of it's cash flow, particularly these tech companies that are built on the the regularity of their services income on like Apple, they've managed to sort of attach themselves from being purely dependent on the iPhone and the sort of peaks and troughs of sales towards the services element the, the recurring revenues that make them so strong. And that's something that you can sort of look at very much almost in, independent in many ways of the economic cycle, whereas the house builders, you have to take into account interest rates, um, even at their current low levels, um, how the broader economy is performing um the availability of credit and the, the, the way the banks are looking at that so there's there's a there's an element where with house builders you have to be aware of the broader cyclical cycle um for tech companies yes they still have things like inflation to deal with if you're making things apple obviously has inflation in terms of its components um but with houses houses you're dealing with a far more uh, sensitive company i think it's, it's looking at the sort of demand for those homes as well and and how strongly the Bank of England and the major banks view the mortgage market um, is something else to bear in mind. So there there again, the P ratios come into play and you could look at how was it doing in terms of the P ratio during the last housing slump versus now, whereas with tech companies, it is not entirely non-cyclical, but it is a bit, I think, steadier in some senses and because of the recurring nature of the, a lot of the revenues now with Amazon, for example, as well. Um, a lot of their income now is coming from web services and cloud computing rather than just selling everything to everyone uh, mantra that everyone is familiar with.
1: Yeah. No, it's interesting the sort of the notion of the macro factors and and the individual company factors. So you mentioned two examples there where the macro plays into the thinking with house builders being more cyclical or inflation affecting the growth stocks. But generally when you're when you're buying a company, how Chris, how do you think, um, to what extent do macro factors play into your thinking? Because because they're so difficult to predict, how often do you think it's just company-based?
2: Yeah, macro investing is notoriously hard. A lot of hedge funds that focus on macro have come a cropper because of it, because, for example, they've argued that um, valuations are too high and that there should be a, a fundamental reckoning with the stock market particularly in the US, and that hasn't obviously hasn't been the case for the past uh, 10 years. Um, It's something you have to be aware of. Clearly, if you were, for example, buying into the stock market furiously during 2008, when the thing was falling, there should be an awareness. You should keep your eye on the news headlines to know what's going on with the broader economy, because ultimately stocks tend to go up when the economy goes up. We could sort of generalize hugely on that point. But um, if economic growth is is strong, then usually um, stocks should do relatively well. Interestingly, if you look at the historical data Strongest returns to the stock market are when the economy is sort of coming out of recessions and coming after crisis which is what we saw last year. If you look back to post-March 2020, the biggest rebound and the biggest recovery um was during the initial few months of, of the recovery from the, the, the first months of the pandemic, and then gains in the market have begun to slow as things go back to normal, something like more normal, which supposed to make sense in many ways because you're getting the game of expectations coming into play, but you do have to keep an eye on the headlines to keep an eye on what governments are doing in terms of increasing or decreasing spending um, and sort of inform your process. And so you should know that when is a a more favorable time for investing. And that's that's why I think people should keep an eye on the macro without worrying too much on the the monthly CPI figure or the, the weekly jobless claims figure in the US, which are important for traders. To an extent, but for longer-term investors, you're looking to smooth out this volatility and capture those opportunities as and when they arise.
1: Yeah, and and just to take it, just to put some more color around the the valuation side that we were talking about earlier. Algie, can you give us an example of a company that you think is a great company at an
0: attractive price and and why? Um, well, I, yeah, I, I have brought an example with me. This is um, this is probably the last company that I I, I highlighted in the stock screen, which I thought was um just really quite an interesting investment case and obviously the thing to caveat and anything like this with is that um you know this is this isn't i I wouldn't say this is a recommendation it's um and there's huge amounts of uncertainty and whenever you're investing in equities things which you haven't foreseen happen and they can be good or they can be bad you know it's like one of the really hard things with um equity investing is determining whether you have any skill because luck has such a large um, you know uh, effect on the end result um but there's a company called Micklemersh brick this was um when when was when was this from this is uh, uh, i think la- last month when i was doing a dividend um, based stock screen and um it's uh, it's it's a company which um i think is um very easily misunderstood because there are reasons why it looks um low quality for want of a better word, which are quite obvious, which is, you know, it sells bricks it sells into construction. That means it's cyclical. Um, So, in other words, if the economy moves, um, it's, uh, you know, it it can do well or do badly. Um, The other thing is uh, it's got lots of kind of variable costs linked to energy prices, which have obviously been a big issue at the moment. Um, and, um, you know, th- this means it's kind of not the master of its own destiny in some ways, because if energy prices go up, it can become less profitable. Um, also, it has a very fixed cost space um, beyond that. And um, what uh, for companies which have large fi- fixed cost spaces, they're more risky, because if their sales move a little bit, their profits move a lot, because they can't change that those fixed costs. So we've got all these elements in this stock, which means... Um, it looks like a company which should have a low valuation but um then it's like it gets slightly more confusing um it's a very conservatively run company which is very good if you have these uncertainties it's got net cash um it's got a very strong dividend record which is why my screen picked it up so it kind of that that kind of hints that management isn't trying to invest in growth for the sake of it they're kind of very focused on returns and we look at this company more closely and we can see that's exactly what we've got a company which is laser focused on margin they they kind of forego growth so that they can have the very best um, Brook brand products um, the kind of premium brands um, of Brooks I mean I never knew such a thing existed but um, you can you can um, you can verify that it does with this company because you can see that its margins are way better than competitors. Um, But then also there's something else which is very interesting, which is it's got um, huge amounts of pricing power, not only because it controls these brands, but because you can't um, get permission to open new kind of um, quarries and brick-making facilities um, because of, you know, the environmental concerns. So actually there's a very limited supply uh, of of bricks in the UK, Um, you know, adequate but limited. Um, Also, exports, uh, you know, not such an issue because we've got the channels separating us and brooks are, you know, very heavy. So, so, you know, there's there's a massive um, barrier to entry for exporters. So you've actually got a company and although um, on the surface it's very cyclical, you've got something very solid, so it's, it's kind of a pun, isn't it, for a brick company? But you've got something very solid beneath it, which is the ownership of these amazing assets, which over time, and, you know, they're very long-life assets, you know you know there's going to be great value there. So um, so it's really it's a company which I think kind of is confusing to look at and understand and, you know, weigh up all the parts of. And that's great because that's often where we have real mispricing. And then the other thing which... Um, uh, you know, really made me think. Well, this is interesting. Now is that um, uh, the shares have recovered a little bit since? But um, when I looked at it, they were down by a quarter because the energy price prices had risen a lot. Well, this company is almost 100% hedged for. I think it is 100% hedged for next year and very hedged for future years, which means they've um, already bought all their energy, so they're not going to be affected by fluctuations in the short term because they've already locked in the you know the, the this this big variable cost. Um, Then also the brick market itself, we're at record low levels of actual brick stock. So that means that, you know, bricks are in demand because people are still building things despite COVID. You know, the construction market came back very strongly. So this company is in a situation where it's a price setter because no one has enough bricks to sell. That's probably actually its biggest risk. It just doesn't... Have the stock to sell, and it's also pushed through price rises for next year of nearly ten percent already. These are kind of you know have have recently been agreed. So um, we've got all these kind of actually virtuous factors sitting behind what on the surface looks like quite a um, poor story. Um, And you're not being asked to pay very much for the shares. I think when when I um, wrote it up, the forecast free cash flow yield, so the actual kind of surplus cash, this company is um, expected to generate is nine um, percent of its enterprise value which is um, in terms of looking at valuations that's come by you know cheap pretty much by any measure um, even though maybe you know quite a good year next year you know maybe it's not representative but also you have things like the p ratio the four uh, there is um you know 14 p is a fine thing to judge a company like this by you know it's a very you know finger in the air yardstick Type valuation. But um, the forward P is 14, which doesn't look at all stretched. And you've got a dividend yield of around 3%. So, you know, you've kind of got a very interesting, um, you know, value play with a lot of, um, you know, tailwinds, which seem to be happening. But the perception of, um, you know, lots of dangers, which won't necessarily materialise. So I thought this was an interesting, um, you know, an interesting stock idea.
1: That's really interesting, thank you. I want to ask you for your next stock idea, but unfortunately we don't have time so i'll I'll direct people to your stock screens and thank you. articles. <laughs> um now Chris, I know this is a really difficult question to answer, but I think it's something people will will be thinking when can you do you have any pointers as to when you can know when's a good time to sell a stock that's done well?
2: this is probably much harder, I think, than actually knowing when to buy a stock. I think a lot of the focus is, is goes into when do you buy a, stock, buy a company. But when when do you sell something? Particularly, it's done really, really well. Um, and the criticism of so many investors and traders is that they sell too early and that they they make a decent gain and then they think they, they, you know, they won't go any further, so they sell and they watch the train leave the station without them and they they sort of have to regret the fact they could have made far more and it is very very hard you can if you're a fundamental investor you could say well change of management could be one if you're looking at technicals if you at a chart and you say well maybe you're looking at a firm trend change um really there are so many reasons why you might want to sell it i think you could certainly argue for the fact that obviously earnings have declined say for two or three years in a row or the dividend maybe maybe you did buy it for at least partly for the dividends and that's been cut then you could sell the share um and move on to something else um you could be one of those people who is looking at saying in a momentum kind of strategy and you're asking for say you're looking to jump on board a share that's rallying 10 20 and then when it's done that you move on to the next opportunity the risk of course is that it continues uh, to move higher um, it really does depend particularly on your the reasons for selling at the time i think we often focus on this with with directors dealing we look at why they bought the shares but often where they sold them um, and that's also interesting, if you perhaps get a wave of selling from people who have positions in the company, that can also be perhaps a red flag sometimes. There are so many factors, just as with buying, to say we, when you might want to sell, that it's frequently impossible to say, This is there's never, except in hindsight, the obvious moment that, that will tell you that you should have sold. Um, there will be companies that will underperform for years and years, um, and then suddenly start to recover. So I think it's it's about making sure that you always whatever you do always keep your, the reasons for in, the initial investment in mind, and if you can hark back to those and say, "Well, this is why I bought it, is that still the case? Should I keep hold of it? Then clearly it has you have to keep hold of it, and if you think that's changed, then maybe you remove it from your portfolio portfolio in the hope of finding something else.
1: yeah, that's very good advice
0: and um and fact if, if if I could just add something um to uh what chris is saying just one really good tip for anyone who's um well if they've been doing it for a long time or just starting out is to always write down that you know that initial case because um it you know you may know it at the time but it's amazing how your memory kind of changes and how actual events kind of warp your memory your um so you you kind of build new things into your thought process and you'll think that that was your memory, whereas in actual fact, that's you adapting to the situation. So just a really important discipline for investors is to kind of succinctly and clearly write down the reasons, uh, you know, w- what they're doing and the reasons for doing that. And then they, you could, that's the only way you can reliably create feedback for yourself and um, assist yourself making those decisions like, is it time to sell? The investor's diary. The invest exactly. I look forward
1: to, to reading yours. <laughs> <laughs> um, another thing that comes up quite a lot is dealing fees and people saying that if you trade too much, that can eat away at your returns. But it's also quite interesting because fees are coming down a lot. Um, Algie, how do you think you should think about? fees and and how often
0: you i think you should think about them far more than you do that's not not, not to you mary just <laughs> as in one should think about them far more than one i mean no one wants to think about fees very much because they're not, it's not fun but um uh if uh, i mean the, the whole idea of compound interest which is kind of like you know the the basis of um you know the, the one's enthusiasm in investing uh kind of works the opposite in the opposite direction when fees are involved. And so um, what, what I did, I went, when I um, assess the, um, uh, the performance of the stock screens, I monitor, I, uh, I kind of always subtract a notional amount for fees. Um, and, and it's like, you know, the the, 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 screens aren't meant as portfolios for people to buy and sell, but um, they're meant for ideas. But I, I just think it's like illustrative. And so, um, I've I, I I've brought along the figures for the high quality large cap screen I, I talked about earlier, which is, um you know the, the the best performing screen I've had over the last ten years, and um so it's managed a cumulative return of um total return of five hundred and twenty percent over ten years, which is you know amazing, um and um if I just subtract annually, one point two five percent for fees. That 520% drops to 447%. So you've lost a huge amount of your return on that 1.25% um, uh, you know, of, of fees because they've compounded over those years. So it, you know, if, if you're if you're thinking about you know how rich am I going to become through my investment, one of the key ways it's so dull and so easily overlooked. One of the key ways just keep your costs down. And that, you know, there's so much to be said for it because it's such a hurdle to overcome if you're, you know, if you're not making good returns and your strategy isn't good.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. We've talked a bit about um, compounding and fees in previous podcasts. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. I've got lots of other questions I'd like to ask you both, but that'll have to be for another day. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thank you. It was great fun. Thank you.